Let's pray as we come to hear God's word to us this morning. Lord Jesus, we come to you hungry to hear from you. The word of God himself, we pray that you would be present, speaking to us, instructing us. Lord, you've given us the brains and the hearts and the bodies that we have. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate our brain, soften our hearts, and enliven our bodies through faith in you. Lord, we long for you to be near us and to teach us. And so we pray that you would guide us through the many questions we ask, the many doubts we face, and especially uh, do this as we come to think about uh, Scripture today. We pray this in your great and holy name. Amen. Every summer we spend uh, four weeks meditating on a topic that's in the Bible, something the Bible talks about, and think about what the Bible says. And the topic I want to lead us through this summer is actually the Bible itself. Uh, I know it's not uh, as exciting of a topic as most of us want from maybe parenting or sexuality or something like that. But just imagine with me for a second that um, as we think about this, that uh, you uh, happened to grow up in the far reaches of British Columbia, perhaps as a hermit. You've never seen anyone with uh, glasses in your life. And then all of a sudden, someone comes uh, strutting into your life wearing these plastic or metal brackets hung around their face, right, with these uh, squares or circles blocking their eyeballs. Uh, you'd want to examine what in the world these strange contraptions were. Why would they hang these things on their face and be so happy about it? You might even notice that as you look at them that the lens actually warps images, Right? To your eyes, it looks strange. Uh, so you'd immediately want to know why in the world this person willingly marks their face and seems to enjoy the image on their retina being warped. Why do they do that? That's actually the experience many people have when it comes to Christians in the Bible. Uh, hey, I'm glad you like that book, but what exactly does it have to do with our life? Why exactly do you read this thing? It's a little bit weird uh, to talk about the Bible for Christians. Uh, it's kind of like talking about your glasses as you're wearing them, their shape, what they do, and so on. It's weird for us because uh, we are used to just seeing through our glasses and not actually talking about the lens itself. But for people outside the church, what's weird for them is actually how little we talk about why we believe the Scriptures and what in the world they have to do with us. So uh, it's not a hot topic in terms of, uh, you know, uh, debate even in the church, but uh, I do see this question being brought up all over, whether it's the History Channel or uh, at the grocery store, the cover of Time Magazine, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls discovered, uh, lots of different questions come up all the time, and I hear this in casual conversations at pubs or coffee houses, uh, and one assumption I hear a lot about the Bible is that basically it's a superstitious book written to keep the church in power. So people say things like, Whatever historical truth might have been in it uh, has been corrupted as it's been passed down through the ages. And that's actually a trend in current pop scholarship. Uh, and it's assumed, in fact, in many college classrooms. So uh, personally, I'll just say the question of whether we can trust the scriptures, how we know it's true, that's been a lifelong question for me. Uh, for years and years, I have wondered and doubted and wrestled with questions like this. Is it wise to believe the Bible? Is that something that smart people do? 
What does it even mean to believe the Bible? And can I be certain about what it says? And is certainty something that you should even expect to get from the Bible? And so to, we're going to be treating these things in our uh, next few weeks. To answer these questions, we have to wade through some technical areas. We have to do some technical and somewhat abstract stuff as we think about what the Bible is and why we believe it. But we need to wade through this precisely because this is one of the most practical nuts and bolts questions that we face as Christians. So if you stick with me, I really think this will be fruitful. But we're going to be a little heady for a little bit. So start today with believing Scripture, and we're going to take this in three main points. First, how does Scripture present itself? Second, what is the most common objection? Third, uh, what does it mean to believe Scripture? What does it actually mean to believe it and to trust that the Bible is true? So first, how does the Scripture present itself? What kind of a document is it? Well, uh, what's it about? It's common in our culture to talk about the Bible as if it were a collection of wise sayings uh, or a rule book. But if you read it, of course, you'll see it's very different. It's actually largely composed of historical narratives, uh, often interspersed with poetry. And uh, there are some reflections on wisdom. We have a whole book called Proverbs or Job. Uh, tons of prayers, actually 150 of them, uh, written in poetic form. And then all of these uh, prophet, uh, prophetic promises written out in poetry again. And then a bunch of letters written to churches uh, largely grouped in modern-day Turkey, Greece, and Italy. That's what the Bible actually is. That's, the, that's what its stuff is. But what ties it all together? The Bible, fundamentally, is a story of God slowly revealing himself through his promises, which the Bible calls covenants, and the ways he saves his people. So God, from the very beginning, progressively displays more and more of himself as he walks with people throughout history. And so you see this full expression of God's interaction with people in this full expression of the kind of things that are in the Bible. But more than that, the fullest expression of who God is comes about in Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus because Jesus is the crowning revelation of the Bible. The Bible begins with God speaking to mankind in a garden home, and it ends with God becoming a man in order to bring them into his home. That's ultimately the whole story of the Bible. So if you just look with me at Luke 24, it's the third scripture in your uh, bulletin. Let me read it to you. This is uh, after Jesus has risen from the dead, and he meets two of his disciples on the road, and they're, they're confused as to why Jesus died. And so he starts talking to them. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his, to, enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that is to say, the first five books of the Bible, and then all of the history books and prof, uh, prophets after that, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In fact, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in John 5. You might know this passage. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what, so what is the Bible? Let me say this. The Bible is the testimony of God through his prophets and apostles. It's the testimony 
of God through his prophets and apostles. And by testimony, I don't mean like sharing a story. I mean solemn legal report that has legal judicial weight. That's what we mean by testimony, the kind of thing that's entered as evidence. It's God's testimony through his prophets and apostles. So it's through his prophets. This is true of Moses, who wrote the first five books. It's true of every other prophet. Let me read to you uh, Deuteronomy 18, which is the last, uh, the biggest passage printed for you. It's toward the end of Moses' life. He's about to die, and he's giving his final sermon to the people of Israel, telling them what's about to happen. So we'll pick up in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, for your bro- from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired to the Lord of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, Let me not hear again of the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They're right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So the Lord promises through Moses that he will bring about a new prophet who, just like Moses, will speak the words God has put into his mouth. That is to say that prophets are a mouthpiece. They're a mouthpiece. They report the things God has spoken to them. And so uh, God puts words into their mouth, and they speak those out. So verse 19, if anyone ignores their words, God will require it of them precisely because to ignore the prophet's words is to ignore God himself, God's words. That means that a human instrument, a human is the instrument for the unseen God revealing himself. That, in a nutshell, is what Scripture is. It is God testifying through human witnesses. That's the same thing in the New Testament. Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. This is the Apostle Paul talking. He had shown up in Thessalonica, and he had preached to them and uh, exposited the Scriptures, and then he was chased out of the city. Uh, by those who opposed him, but there was a group there who believed. And so he writes this letter back to them. After he's left, he writes a letter, and he says in verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Notice what Paul says there. He says that he, as an apostle, brought the word of God, but they heard it from his mouth. So in all appearances, it might seem like it's just Paul's words. Right? He spoke it. What he's saying is that it did not originate with him. So when you receive words from one of God's chosen mouthpieces, you receive God's words. So we can't ignore, interestingly, the humanity of the Bible. God chooses particular people to become his mouthpieces and sends his spirit on them so that they would become his witnesses out into the nations. And God authorizes humans to speak for him. You know, it's interesting. The Bible presents itself unapologetically as divine, as God's speech, and at the same time, human. 
both. And that should actually make perfect sense to us. Because Jesus is the great prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. He is the one who is a prophet like Moses. And Jesus not only speaks God's words put into his mouth, but is the word God has spoken. Let me read John uh, 1 to you. This is the second passage printed in your bulletin. And the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That is to say, Jesus, who is one with the Father, who is the only God, has came and explained the unseen God to us in his flesh. That is to say, God speaks to us through humans. So much so that he himself became a human. But it's interesting because Jesus didn't write any books. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, there's no signed copies to, to pass out. It'd be nice. I'd prefer a video uh, you know, version of Jesus' sermons, personally. But he didn't. So what does he do? Well, Acts tells us this, chapter 1. Jesus is speaking to the apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So Jesus, who becomes human and is the word that God has spoken, after he rises from the dead, ascends up into heaven and gives his spirit to the apostles so that they can become his witnesses. Uh, James Boyce, a PCA pastor out in Philadelphia, who's, who's now dead, he points out that because the spirit given to them is the spirit of Christ, it means that Jesus did not stop his ministry. He did not stop ministering and revealing who God is because his earthly life was ended. Rather, he continued it through his spirit, through his chosen representatives, through the apostles, Jesus' spoken word continues. And so the importance of the apostles lies in the fact that through them, Christ himself continues to testify. Their mission is his mission. Their witness is his witness. It turns out that all along, Jesus is the one who is giving words to the prophets. Whose words are in the prophet's mouth? Jesus's, because he is the one who reveals the Father. And now by his spirit, he is still actually applying his same word that he spoke through the apostles, cutting us to the heart, exposing, restoring, giving life where there was none. The same voice that spoke the world into existence, spoke and gave the prophets and the apostles their words, and now, even still, speaks to us and gives us life as we hear them. That is what the Bible is. It's Christ's written ministry to us. And it's a creation of the Spirit of God working through the minds and peculiarities of the writers to reveal God's mind. God is no liar, and so there is no falsehood in the Scriptures. But, interestingly, 
Uh, we tend to think that once we emphasize the humanity of the scriptures, we are threatening to ignore the divinity of the scriptures. So we want to purge the human element. We want to act like, well, these people went into a trance and they just kind of wrote down some things and see, it's God's speech and there's no, there's no human interaction at all. But that's actually not the way the Bible talks, is it? If you actually turn to page three in your bulletin, I put a quote for you in there from a Dutch theologian named G.C. Burkauer. I picked a Dutch guy for all of you from Linden, just to please you a little bit. He says this. From the world of men, amidst all its uncertainty, the testimony of God resounds as a true and trustworthy word of man, as the human witness concerning Christ. The second quote is, blew my mind. In sacred scripture, we never confront God speaking outside of human media. That is to say, apart from humans speaking, writing, apart from Jesus in his humanity. We never confront God speaking outside of human media, outside of the horizontal perspective in history. We meet the word of God precisely in the witness of the prophets and the apostles. You see, it's common to think that if we can somehow prove the Bible had no human involvement, it would be more true. And I'll be the first to say, people are not trustworthy. Okay? We've all lived in the world long enough to know that that is true. But it's common for Christians to turn this around and turn the Bible into an instruction manual or a textbook or golden tablets that dropped from heaven. But I want you to know that those are not Christian ideas. Those are Muslim and Mormon ideas. Ideas they use to make sure that their scriptures are never questioned. They're never open to doubt. They're insulated from critical reasoning. I want you to know that our God is not afraid of our questions. Okay? We are invited to actually critically reflect on exactly what this book is and what's happening in it. So, in light of that, what is the common objection to believe in the Bible? There's a, a ton, of course, but the most common that's touted around these days is that the Bible's original teaching was lost in transmission. That what we now have is not what it started as. So this is our second point, and we're thinking about the, the common objection that the Bible was lost in transmission. In fact, there's a great book named Lost in Transmission. It's written by a guy named Nick Perrin. I have it, a copy of it. I'd recommend it to you. It's a great read, very well written, easily accessible, that treats some of these questions. So this is a question about the text. This is kind of like asking, uh, in terms of the, glass the glasses analogy, who exactly made those glasses, right? Uh, what authority do they have? How do we know for certain that they aren't fake? Okay, that's the kind of question that's being asked. And this is the, uh, the objection that makes most new Christians tremble, and I think in many cases, sweeps a lot of Christians off their feet when they show up in college because they haven't reflected on the humanity of Scripture yet. So we, this is our technical part here, if it wasn't technical already. Uh, but it, it matters, and I want you to be exposed to it so that when it comes up, you know uh, that we've thought about it before, but also that this is an open invitation to come and sit with me. And I'd be glad. that I'd, I'd love to geek out with you on this stuff for hours, okay? I have all the time in the world for that. Uh, I'm ready to explore this with you further. So Bart Ehrman uh, is a popular name. You've probably seen it uh, in lots of magazines, and he's around. Uh, he writes popular books, and he makes this critique. Essentially, his complaint 
is that the truth of Scripture uh, was lost as it was transmitted from generation to generation. And he says that a certain group of people got into power in the church, and under their influence, a number of mistakes and insertions were made in the Bible by people copying the text. Actually, he goes further. He says that some of these mistakes were intentionally added to change the meaning of the text so that people could stay in power. And so he says the text that we have is corrupt. So what do we say about this? What do we say about transmission and this whole question? First, you need to know that the way the New Testament came to us is that it was written by the apostles and they'd send it to churches. And once they received it, they would distribute it, transmit it, copy it. And so the Bible has been distributed, transmitted, and copied over generations, over millennia. But here's the catch. All the New Testament was written on papyrus. And if you know how paper does in moist settings, our paper does a lot better than papyrus does. Papyrus rots, especially in moist settings. So Paul's original letters, John's original gospel, have not been found. And that's probably because they were written on papyrus. And they've rotted. And they're gone. So what do we do with that? Well, the fact is, is that once a community received a letter from one of the Gospels, they copied it over and over and distributed it. Think of uh, a, a viral YouTube video, okay? Uh, once it gets sent to you, what do you do with it? You watch it. It's hilarious. You watch it again. You grab a friend. You watch it again. You send it to your other friends. You post it on Facebook. And all of a sudden, it starts spreading. That's exactly what happened with the New Testament. They would receive these letters, and they were read every week in church. In fact, you can look at the end of Colossians. Paul tells people, read this letter in church. And they distribute it, and they read it in homes. And so 80 years after the apostles have died, the church has spread all around the Mediterranean, uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, even out to India, we think, and North Africa as well. And they took their books with them. So by 170 AD, we have a substantial list of all of the books of the New Testament that are being read every week, that people know, they pray through, they've memorized. They live in the church, and they're taken with the church. So by the 300s, you have these things called scriptoriums, which are like official copying houses. And they start collecting these copies that have lived in the churches, and they start making official books and collect all these things together. The fact is, though, we have copies of both these early church papyrus and these scriptorium books called codex, codices. The fact is, is that if you compare the early papyrus and the scriptorium copies, they are about 99% identical. Transmission was almost flawless. There's some misspellings because it turns out that people in the first century couldn't spell better than us, right? Uh, so that's a good news. But uh, otherwise, uh, other some misspellings and some minor errors, they are nearly identical. So that is to say, for the first 300 years of the church, the scriptures were rehearsed every Sunday, every day as people gathered for prayer and morning and evening, and they were transmitted faithfully. But after the year 400, things get a little bit squirrely. When we look at copies from 450 on, we do find verses added to help explain the meaning. In fact, you know one of them by heart. For thine is the kingdom and the power and 
The glory, yeah. That's an addition. It came in uh, much later, probably in the 500s. There are even two whole paragraphs added in the New Testament. Uh, These are the only two major additions. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, uh, after the resurrection, there's this passage that puts on Jesus' lips. He gives uh, a similar commission to his apostles as we find in Matthew. In fact, if you read the two next to each other, they sound very similar. He also speaks about being bitten by snakes but not dying. And so it puts on Jesus' lips things that come from Matthew or seem to be echoing what happened to Paul in the book of Acts. That is to say that one of these big additions, one of these big insertions after 450, which is not a good idea, actually doesn't change anything. It's just echoing things other books have taught us already. The other big addition is a favorite passage for many of us. It's in John 8, where the woman is caught in adultery and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus. And he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And what happens? Everyone leaves and Jesus says, who's left to condemn you? She says, no one. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Beautiful passage. But it's clearly not written by John. Okay? It showed up uh, after 450. In fact, our earliest copies of John are some of our earliest copies of the entire New Testament. They're dated from about 150 to 200, which is remarkably early in terms of text preservation. They're called the Bodmer Papyri, if you'd like to look them up. Very fun. We have pictures. They're cool. Uh, they, those early passages, those early copies of the New Testament and John, do not contain this story in John 8. It shows up after the 400s. And so if you're in your Bibles, you probably have a footnote that says this story is not found in the earliest manuscripts. It's true. It's not found in the earliest manuscripts. And I didn't preach on John 8 for that reason. I skipped it. I didn't want to preach to you something that the apostle clearly did not teach. So, Clearly, as we get farther on in church history, people did begin to actually tolerate changes in the Bible. Especially as they started thinking of the church as the ultimate authority. However, just as we've talked about those things, none of those insertions change a lick of doctrine, do they? Is John 8 a big upset? No, of course not. Well, Ehrman sees all this and he says that we shouldn't trust the transmission. He says it's Uh, much more suspicious because of these things that we just talked about. Let me give you an analogy to describe why I think he's wrong. Uh, And not just me, many people. Uh, A modern-day analogy would be uh, if Trump, President Trump, assigned a group of archivists to republish the U.S. Constitution, written 250 years ago, right? Same kind of text that's been transmitted. But under Trump's influence, they might change certain amendments or insert new paragraphs which would allow him to keep more power, uh, keep him in office, or further his agenda somehow. But if you think about it, even as I say that, you begin to see how ridiculous that suggestion is. We know what the U.S. Constitution says, don't we? Uh, And even if a new and revised edition came out, there would be massive riots Even if the whole Senate was behind Trump putting out a new constitution, would the people tolerate it? Absolutely not. Because why? Because we know it. Because we know what it says. At least many of us do. (laughs) That's the problem with this critique about the Bible. That's the problem with Ehrman's objection. 
the early church knew very clearly the Old Testament and the New Testament because they prayed it every day. They read it. They had it read to them. They listened to it. They gathered every day for morning and evening prayer. They devoted themselves to the teaching, and so they knew what it said. They knew and rehearsed what the apostles taught. And so they would have never tolerated anyone change it. In fact, what we have lots of record of is them not tolerating changes. Them naming people who were trying to change what the apostles said and saying, nope, that is not what we believe. So they would not have tolerated any changes and certainly not any that changed the teaching. So John is one of those insertions, but is it a big deal? John 8, no, of course not. Does it change our view of Jesus, that Jesus would be kind to this woman caught in adultery? No, it's basically another version of John 4, where Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman. Uh, was it what John wrote? I, I doubt it. But does it matter? Actually, not really. It actually doesn't matter a ton. We don't lose much from taking that passage out, and we don't gain much from having it. Airman's complaint doesn't hold much water. John 8 is no conspiracy passage. So it's important to recognize as well that we know it is an insertion precisely because we know what the original said. We have early copies, and we know that things have been inserted, and so we know what the early things said. Even so, I think for many of you, as I talk about this, this is fairly unnerving. Uh, you might be thinking to yourself, what do you mean there are copyists' errors or even insertions? What do you mean that there's human interference with this document at all? How can we believe it if there's anything that's questionable about it? The reason why I wanted to talk about this is because I think what's unnerving for us is that we want to have beliefs that can't be doubted. We want utter Certainty and having oddities or places in the scripture we can't explain exactly or clear marks of human interference that does not give us 100% bulletproof certainty. I mean, in general, we don't like having doubts and not having answers, right? That's true of anything. But uh, also because we have been sold a lie that true knowledge never has any doubts in it, we really struggle here. And that's actually the standard of knowledge that Descartes came up with in the 1600s. What I want to talk about next is actually that's not the Scripture's standard of true knowledge. What if believing the Bible is the Word of God doesn't mean that you can prove every single thing it says 100%? Let's think about what then it means to believe in the Bible. This is our third and final point. I'll go a little bit quicker. What does it mean to believe the Bible? To believe the Bible, to believe it 100% means that you believe the person testifying in the Bible. You believe the person testifying in the Bible. I keep using this testimony phrase because the Bible uses it, but I think actually even talking about it, we feel uncomfortable. Testimonial knowledge is not something we like. We think it's dumb to believe something just because someone told you, right? But the fact is, uh, is that many of us believe in gravity for this exact same reason. 
How many of you uh, woke up this morning and tested the laws of gravity to make sure it was 9.8 millimeters per second squared before you did anything else? None of you. None of you. How many of you came to believe that gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared simply by rigorous, objective, scientific investigation that established the facts without prior assumption? No one in the world has done that. Not even Newton. That's actually not the way we learn and know things. In fact, many of us believe that about gravity precisely because a textbook told us. What is a textbook? It's institutional authority. It's institutional testimony. So it turns out that actually most of our knowledge comes from other people. I believe that my parents, Tom and Candace Robbins, are actually the people who gave birth to me and had me at the hospital and then brought me home because they said it. <laughs> right? You believe that my real name's Daniel. Who knows? I mean, wildly, I believe that all of the ballots and electoral votes were actually enough to make president, to make Trump the president. And we don't think that's dumb precisely because testimony is essential for all of our knowledge. We trust people's word all the time. But we get wigged out when we want to be totally certain. So what makes us accept some people's words as truth in some cases, but not in other cases? We know people lie and deceive and should not always be trusted, so we believe someone to be telling the truth if, two things, their character has been tested, and we know they're not a liar, they're not going to betray us once they've gained our trust. Secondly, that they have authority in this area, that they're in a position to know the truth about the thing they're talking about, the thing we're uncertain of. So they have a tested character, and they have authority. And that's why it makes perfect sense for us to believe in gravity from a textbook. What do they gain by telling us that? That's why it makes sense to believe the news about uh, elections. It turns out that this is also why it makes sense to believe in and receive the testimony of God who speaks in the Bible through apostles and prophets. Their character is tested. The apostles and prophets' character is tested. Look with me at the end of Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse uh, 21. This is one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? How can we tell? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. It turns out that no one in the Bible is superstitious or gullible. They ask the exact same questions we do. Great, so you're going to raise up a prophet, and he's going to speak the words of God to us? How do we know that his words are actually God's words? Right? They're asking the same questions we are. They had many people who actually claimed to be prophets. You read your Old Testament, you're going to find out there's a ton of false prophets, people who lied and pretended to speak in the name of the Lord. And they had to test them. Does this person have a track record of telling the truth about God? Do they have any sort of signs that have confirmed or corroborated that God is actually speaking through them? Think about Moses. When he comes to the people of Israel, he's like, they're not going to believe me. The Lord says, throw your staff on the ground, it'll turn into a snake. 
does so, and there's this sign. The apostles were tested in a very similar manner. They preached and announced the good news about Jesus, but what did they gain from it? Beatings, whippings, persecution, watching their friends be murdered, running for their lives, being exposed to danger and threats to their life constantly. But they spoke the truth in love at great cost to themselves. And so they were vetted. And they were seen to be people of character who we could trust. But the problem is that vetting can't answer all our questions. There's always risk in believing. There's always risk in believing. When we believe, it makes us vulnerable to mockery, to looking foolish. Psalm 119, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. That is to say, if I cling to your testimonies, it's likely, I'm afraid, that I will look foolish. Vetting and testing can only clear the way for us to actually begin dealing with God himself. We believe what God has said through his prophets and apostles because God himself has paid a very high cost to make those promises. You see, God is not like an abuser who makes empty promises and wins your trust but doesn't take on any risk himself. Instead, God is the consummate servant and king. He makes royal promises in his word but gives a guarantee of them in his own blood. Jesus' death on the cross is not simply for our sins. It's actually the price that God paid to make the promises he's made. He has given his own life as the basis for trusting him. And so his death and resurrection are the very center and foundation of our trust in God. And therefore, our trust in the Bible where God speaks. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cling to your testimonies. Do not let us be put to shame. Lord, we do thank you that you have given us so many tools to test and vet your word, to be careful and to know that it has been carefully preserved for us. And yet, Lord, at the end of the day, we are just simply afraid often. And we would like much more certainty. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would lead us to trust 